Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Soho Shortwave, the podcast from Soho Radio that gives you a taste of some of our best content each month. Soho Radio is an online radio station broadcasting live from London and New York. With the carefully curated Soho Shortwave podcast, you can easily explore our eclectic, exciting range of shows. It's the first episode of Series 2 of Soho Shortwave, and what a podcast we have in store. We've got live music from the Soho Radio takeover of South Facing Festival. Composer and performer Anna Meredith MBE chats to Max Reinhardt on his late lunch show. We have a very special interview from Soho Radio NYC. George Burton, host of Forward Motion, speaks to the legendary bassist and vocalist Michelle Endegayo-Cello. And lastly, director Alfred George Bailey talks all things film with the people from Dock and Roll. Collectiva are an all-female nine-piece ensemble who explore the space between Afro-Latin music and jazz tropicaliente. Here's a snippet of their fabulous set at South Facing Festival in Crystal Palace this month.
Thank you, everybody. Big up South Facing Festival for having us. This is an amazing stage. We're so happy to be here and so blessed with this sunshine today as well. This next one is called Colectiva, like us. <laughs> So this next tune is called Nicoletta, um, and I just want to big up our flute player Sarah Wackett here. Isn't she amazing? We love her. <laughs> uh, this is an arrangement that she brought to us and we worked on together about a very special woman uh, who we both knew. 
Now for a change of pace. Join veteran broadcaster Max Reinhardt in conversation with composer and performer Anna Meredith. They chat about her latest project, Bumps Per Minute, an interactive artwork that reimagines the humble dodgem. You'll see what I mean. Let us hear what Anna Meredith is up to now, because uh, here is the opening track. It's called Start Engines. Um, and uh, I think uh, I think it's a, a little bit of a surprise. Drivers, bumps per minute is about to begin. We'll be cruising clockwise, so keep your limbs and loved ones under control at all times. If you require assistance, wave your hands in the air and our team of experts will rush to your rescue. So... Buckle up, start your engines, get ready to rumble, get ready to trundle. We drive in three, in two, in one. Well, that's the beginning of Bumps Per Minute by Anna Meredith, her new work, which even now is going to be delighting crowds or non-crowds, as we'll hear, at Somerset House. Uh, Anna Meredith, if you don't know anything about Anna Meredith, I can't believe it, frankly. For nearly 20 years, she has been um, dominating, dominating my world and dominating the world of uh, people who are looking for a kind of fresh approach to contemporary classical music. And that is definitely what she's done. It's also, as it happens, a fresh approach to all kinds of tech music as well. Um, she's a person who wrote Hands Free, uh, in which uh, musicians in the Albert Hall didn't pick up their instruments at all for the entire work. Um, she's done symphonies which have included beatboxes. Um, she's done that amazing track that you just heard before, Nautilus. And now, well, a little later on, we might hear what she did at uh, when she opened the proms a couple of years back when there were still full-hearted proms with five telegrams. Uh, uh, just an amazing piece of work which literally lit up the Albert Hall um, inside and outside. But now she's working with bumper cars. Bumper cars. How did this occur? I mean, you know, if you'd have come in and said, yeah, this time it's going to be can openers and marbles, I'd have believed that too. And I'd have gloried in it. But bumper cars, tell me about it. Practically, the, what happened with this project was my studio is in Somerset House in London, which has a big courtyard. And I was talking to Jonathan Rieke, who's the chief exec there. And normally Somerset House have a very classy, lovely ice skating at Christmas. And he was saying, and this would be well over a year ago when everything was all going wrong and everything was getting cancelled and we all didn't have a clue what, you know, what was going to happen. He was saying, oh, I don't think we're going to do ice skating. And I just immediately said, well, I definitely think you should do dodgems. It's perfect for it. It's a big flat space and it can be distanced and it can be cleaned and all the stuff. And miraculously, he said, let's go for it. And then I also managed to shoehorn in. I said, well, and also I think I should write some new music for it so it's not just dodgems. So it kind of felt like a very natural, natural thing to suggest at the time. And um, just just tell us uh, a little more about your um, love of fairgrounds, because I think listeners might have missed that bit due to a, a slight um, flicker here. But carry on. <laughs> Yeah, sure. I mean, I've always been a bit uh, fascinated and a bit scared of fairgroundy stuff. You know, definitely as a kid, the the draw of the local fairground and all the sights and smells and you know the, the all the chat about the rides you were going to go on and then you'd go down with your pocket money and you know there'd be these kind of cool older kids you know pushing the rides along and um who who you know lived on site and they'd play this amazing music you'd never heard and it was this kind of sexy grown-up scary alluring um uh kind of you know junk foody fueled a couple of days in the local you know in my village and um, so there's always been this intrigue, but I was also a massive wuss who would never, you know, chicken out of going to stuff. And as I've got older, 
I've kind of weirdly reclaimed that like quite recently I've started going on roller coasters a bit and you know kind of plucking up the courage to do some of these things I was too much of a wuss to do when I was a kid so yeah that kind of I've actually gone the other way I've actually gone the other way well uh, yeah I I had my 50th birthday quite a while ago um with uh, grandchildren and everything uh at, at um some big theme park and we went on all the rides and some people were sick and that was great and I loved it but now I can't really face it and I did actually have a bad experience on the at the WOMAD fairground with one of my daughters when we made the mistake of eating a lot of donuts before we got on this ride which is a bit like being in the back of a dust cart but Yeah, schoolboy error there. You've got to really pace, you know, and even no matter how tempting it might feel to drink loads, you've got to, but, you've got to really pace yourself with this stuff. But a couple of things about your fairground experiences. So um, so when you were very little and what you describe as a, a wuss, um, did, so did you prefer the, the kind of sideshows where you could win goldfish in bags, which seems a bit cruel now, frankly, um, or you go uh, fishing for plastic ducks, which... Actually, that's bad for the planet too. But anyway. (laughs) I think the honest answer is I wanted to be in all the scary rides. So I'd be the person standing at the side watching them, you know, really, you know, fascinated and intrigued and wishing I was braver, but not quite able to push myself over the line. So I'd convince myself that I was loving the lame little kind of puttering kids train or the... You know, I, I just I wanted to be braver, but I wasn't. But I was obsessed and intrigued and very drawn to these kind of adult, fast-paced, loud volume, bit of danger. You know, it, it was very, very attractive. But I, my, and that's where I wanted to be. And my heart wasn't really in the other stuff, no matter how much I tried to tell myself otherwise. And and the music that you heard then, I mean, what did that sound like? I mean, this would be nineties. And it would be, you know, I didn't have computer game consoles as a kid um, or even really listen to much music growing up. And, you know, I guess there'd be, so this would be like early, early sort of dance, well, dance music, rave stuff, techno things, things I didn't know or, but, you know, it was loud and it was beat driven and it was all very synthy and electronic, probably not much vocal stuff or maybe the odd sort of sampled vocal, but definitely stuff that felt quite heightened and you know tempos I probably wasn't very used to hearing and probably some like drum and bass and this kind of thing yeah it all felt very exotic but the I mean there's definitely a trad side to the way that you've put this music together and I guess it does remind you of kind of uh, extremely vibed up well I mean everyone uses this cliche so I will too um, it's kind of like computer game music on steroids but on top of that it's got a whole kind of like all the fairground organ stuff seems to be seeping in at the sides and um, I wonder where, where you kind of got swept away on that was that actually at the fairground or is that something else to get these sound worlds no not not to well just what you know what what brought you to fairground organs as well mm. because i mean do you see what i mean because you could have done like given the kind of thing that happened when you got on the whip or the bumper cars and like the the guys were there pushing around in leather jackets mm. and greasy hair and all that fantastic stuff well mm. uh you know the music that you heard was just heavy bass i, I can i i can remember lots of you know, stack sounds and Tamla Motown and things like that, as well as, you know, mm. kind of uh, seaside and fairground music. Mm. I mean, definitely this music is not, you know, this isn't heavy, fast techno. You know, these tunes are in a way quite traditional, like you say. They're almost like little organ studies, maybe more tapping into the sort of stuff you might hear more in a kind of slightly out of control carousel or something so they don't have any beats in them this music it's um entirely uh, yeah it's very old-fashioned i've notated each one of these tracks you know on manuscript and done that to generate the midi to generate the information that i've then exported into into synths but it's all been written 
in a way very classically um, they're little miniatures they're what was actually different about writing them though to some other stuff I've done is normally when I'm writing I like these long form structures that have lots of multi sections or have lots of moments of changes of direction or changes of feel and you know I spend a lot of time doing the pacing to make sure that there are um, these evolutions and lots of development and here the idea of these tracks is that they they barge in fully fledged um, you know because if you're writing the installation version of these tracks you're probably only ever going to hear 10 seconds before someone else bumps you so they needed to they needed to almost you'd almost need to start the track at the climax moment where everything's it needs to be pretty fully fledged at the beginning and that was quite kind of freeing to compose because I could just sort of you know I had to think of all 18 of these tracks as fully evolved confident different to each other bold uh, entities that had to match each other had to be balanced but it meant I could write some kind of quite fun things that I probably wouldn't have written otherwise just as part of the sort of pie chart of what I wanted the balance of all the elements to be. Well um, I'm going to play another well i think you have to play them in twos actually um because they're very short um so i'm going to play uh bpm 144 that's the third track followed by the fourth track um and then let's talk about how it works online and how it works at somerset house um but uh here we are bpm 144 Well, that was uh, BPM 108, which followed fast on the um, fast on the dodgem of uh, BPM 144. And uh, you were just talking about the titles. Apparently, although I'm enjoying the fact that they're called BPM and then some numbers, um, you're actually going to give them some names. Yeah, they have full. Initially, they were just the tempos, the BPMs, and that's what's up, on, you know, online just now. But there are these titles that as we were mixing and making them and the guys in my band who I was sort of running them by, you know, and we all just couldn't tell them apart eventually. So we started to give them all little nicknames based on how they sound or little in-jokes we were hearing when we were playing them. And they've just stuck. So, that, But they're quite fun. They're off kilter. You know, there's names like um, Family of Rats or Tom Cruise Runs or Pursued by Pigeon, you know, there's 18 titles like that, but we're running this competition for one more week to see if people can match up the BPMs with the names. Insanely unlikely statistics of actually getting them all right, but there's prizes and stuff for people to win, which I thought this might be a fun way to give people a bit of a, you know, experiment about, and then we'll pop the real titles up um, in a week's time. And so, but will people actually... uh eventually name one of them them you know with their idea was that what you were saying it's even more egotistical than that it's literally i've given there's like a prize it's like a name matching competition oh, there's right. 18 okay. yeah so if you go it's on this website which is bumpsperminute.com and then if you go to win there's a page where there's 18 names and 18 dodgems each one has its has it's a bpm number and you drag the dodgem onto the name and it matches it up and then you say right these are the ones i think are that these you know this is the one that i think is uh, owl tinder and you know then you then you match it up and you put it in and you can win some kind of extraordinary you know award-winning prize so yeah it's not it's not your naming it's your matching skills i see okay i got it i got it now but also i see that you can win one of five bonza prizes (laughs) (laughs) hey they're real premium (laughs) <laughs> that you get well i mean i say that you get to have a go on the actual dodgems maybe even against me you know that's and by now having tried these things out i'm quite the i'm quite the driver if i say so myself let's hear another couple of tracks and i think that you should choose them 
Okay, hang on. I can never remember the BPM, so let me just look them up very quickly because they're not, as I said, uh, sadly not quite catchy enough. Okay, let's do. I really like 130, BPM 130. And actually, you could then quickly go on to 200 for a bit of contrast for that. Okay, I can do that. Up next from Soho Radio NYC, Forward Motion is hosted by musician and composer George Burton. Enjoy this snapshot of his amazing interview with renowned bassist and vocalist Michelle Endegaiocello. So I have to be honest, first time <laughs> I heard you, because uh, I was Please thinking do. about this whole interview for a little while, and I was like, man. So the first time I, I discovered you, and, I, and for me to say this out loud, by design, I hide my age. Literally by the why? why? It's just one of those things that I've always done. People are like, "Yeah, you're 22." I'm like, "Yes," and I wow, stay there. really? Yeah, hmm. I've always kind of done that. Are you ageist? Are do you have issues with age? I'm not sure. I've been working on that myself. Like people start calling me grandpa on gigs, and I'm like, ah. and then I get like self conscious oh. about it. But um, why? Okay, yeah, we'll get back to that. Go ahead. <laughs> I remember discovering you like I literally remember exactly where I was. Um, it was 1997 and I was checking out Berkeley to go to college. Mm, yeah. And I remember a friend of mine um, was like, okay, so we're going to, we're going to check out these classes and then we're going to go to this party. And I went to the party and I remember walking in the party and like, you know, you had like one of the nineties boom boxes, small boom boxes with the CD player in it. Mm-hmm. And I got going. I was just standing there, like, yeah. So what is this? Like, this is ridiculously killing. And I'm looking around, and I'm like, I can't press stop, open the CD player, pull it out to see what it is, <laughs> and then put it back in because then I'm going to be the party pooper. So I kind of like walked around this party for a while, going, so can somebody tell me what album this is? Can somebody tell me what album? And people were just looking at me like I was crazy. Like, look, look, there's other things to do. I was like, no, no, no. This is this is it right here. And, you know, I finally found somebody and they told me, and obviously it was before Shazam was around, so you couldn't <laughs> quietly do yeah. it. I remember it was the, the album Peace Beyond Passion and being like, man, this is amazing. Can you tell me about, I mean, yeah, tell me about the album, but uh, can you tell me about like life as, in the music scene for you at that point in time? Um, what was it like? What was going on? Because it's much different than it is now from my perspective. But for you, what, what, what was it like? You know, what was life like and all that good stuff? Oh. Well, yeah, 97, very different time, much larger budgets, a lot more, um, I about to say, there's a, a lot more dedication to sonics and sound because mm-hmm. you, you didn't have, you couldn't just do it in your laptop. Right. I think it was my second recording. So I had, I was coming off of the first recording, which I sort of did in an insular way, like did the programming and then had people guest on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was sort of a, a, all, a, all me kind of experience more so than the second one where I could um, afford to, to have Gene Lake and Federico Gonzalez Pena and uh, Joshua Redman. And I just started to, it was a time where you could open up your ideas because you had a certain type of budget and a certain sort of, um, expectation that it would sound a specific way. I grew up listening to Quincy Jones records and I really understood that the way the mix hit you also affected the song, how the song would hit you. And so that's, that's where my, I believe my mindset at that time. And I've been really into uh, Steely Dan as well, Mm -hmm. Uh, David Gamson and I. So we really wanted to make something that was, orchestrated to feel good and be be interesting to the listener as well that's all in hindsight but those are the major memories that come about I was like I wanted to create something that was had the the sonic feel of a Quincy Jones record like stuff like that and 
also be interesting rhythmically in terms of R&B, like a Steely Dan record. And, right. and, 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 and of course, other classic uh, R&B records I loved from that period. to a lot of different colors like already you mentioned you know steely dan and already you mentioned uh quincy and and all your albums that i've listened to all and through all these years is there a particular method that you go about doing that like as there's like okay so this oh. album is going to be this is this album going to be that this album is going to be this this album's going to pay for everything i need for the next five years whatever the case the situation is you <laughs> oh. know how that is you gotta you know so is, it, yeah, is there yeah. a particular method to it because everything i've ever seen you do firmly in who you are as an artist <laughs> all right well the the first and second recordings are like big big budget you know warner brothers kind of records you know i'm i'm on this subsidiary of a major label mm -hmm. so yes you get a budget and you you you, you take out the part you you're, you you trust your accountant, which right. is a, another conversation. Right, right. To right, carve out what you can live on, and then you know you do you go about and use the rest to fulfill your dreams. You know because that's all you're doing. Right. You know when you're when you're young and you you believe in your ideas, and so you so yes, I think um, I do have a methodology because I ask myself often, what is a producer? And I think I've I've worked with all different styles of production. Take mm -hmm. David Gamson, for instance, who produced my first two recordings. Um, he comes, he's the he's the brainchild of the band Scritti for Liddy. Mm -hmm. You know, when he is a amazing producer, he produced uh, this a Chaka, this Chaka Khan record that I love that no one ever heard. But he did Love You Still. Uh, and it's, it's, it's amazing. But he's the person that sort of showed me, you know, there's these different methodologies. It could be a record where it sounds, like I said, insular, like it's just my programming, and then we'll enhance it in mixing and in post-production. Uh, or he's like, you, let's take the, the song Faggot off of uh, uh, Peace Beyond Passion. Mm -hmm. We were really into string arrangers. So, you know, you, so in your mind, you go like, let's create something kind of like, um, I, I really love the Stevie Wonder record, Hotter Than July, and it has Paul Reiser, the string arranger on it. So in your mind, you go like, let's go find that guy. Right, right. <laughs> and you have a budget for it. So yeah, right. I'm methodical in that way. But in terms of like, when I'm writing, that's all freedom. And then- right. Once I begin the process, I start to just like, how could I make this interesting? Where am I coming from with this? Um, is production the mixer? You know, I worked with Bob Power a lot, who's done The Roots, all the Tribe Called Quest records. So I knew at the end, I'd have this person that could sort of turn it into something sonically I could never get to on my own. That's why I struggle with a lot of modern music, because it's just hard for me to listen to in terms of just how it sounds sonically. So yes, that's right. a big, big thing for me because I have about, I guess, 2000 songs sitting in my little laptop that I've made, but mm -hmm. I know they're just little laptop demos, <laughs> you know? Right, right. <laughs> I miss that world of where I could go like, ah, I can add these people and create this thing, and do this and build upon it and really take my time. I lived in a, those records are made where there's three to four years between them. I live in a world now where people make recordings every day. <laughs> right. New music is released every day, you know, and there's, so yeah, that's, so I, I do miss that sort of methodical thinking and that time and that preparation. And um, also allowing people to do their job. I'm the bassist and the songwriter and the vocalist. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to have to be the engineer. <laughs> right, too. right. 
Yeah, that's, a, that's which a is whole... a style of production. Yeah, that is. There are some people that is a style of production, though. No, it's, def- yeah. it's definitely is, and and some of them are really killing at it, and some of them are killing it. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's my, my <laughs> little thing. <laughs> but in, in saying that, okay, we're talking about how fast music comes out because I'm like, I I, I don't move that fast. Yeah. Has the quality of your writing changed since then? Since since it's changed over the years? I mean, we're talking. The quality I can't answer. That's up to someone else. Right. Of but course. in terms of the modus operandi, but yeah, I mean, I have an iPad and when I'm on the plane, I, I, I can just, instead of reading the newspaper, I sit and I just try to make things. I can do it all the time. So it's, it's teaching me that sometimes I have to stop. I think it's, it's kind of like a relationship in the phone. Right. I remember you write people letters or you'd have to wait to call them and weeks would go by. And I think it, it's like now it's just constant, constant, constant. And I think it affects the uh, emotionality of the relationship or the writing. It's like you're just constantly submerged in, in creativity. I wonder at what point I was like, maybe it just becomes activity. Right, right. It's just an action that you're doing. You're not like, it's like, am I calling you because I really want to hear to hear your voice and talk to you? No, I'm just calling you because I can. I mean, do, do you practice every day? No. And when you record, the, yeah, actually, this is more my question. When you record, do you edit yourself on Pro Tools? No. Right. I mean, yeah. give thanks. Give thanks. Uh, it's like, there's just so many there's too many options sometimes. And that that's what I think I question as well. So many options. I'm exactly there with that, with you with that, because it's like, I go through this thing where, at least for me personally, where it's, you know, I was just working on somebody's album a couple of weeks ago. Every single step was like, edit this, we could drop this into that. We could drop this into that. And I get to a certain point where I'm like, well, I feel like you're taking out the soul of what it actually is. And it's becoming this thing. Hmm. I was listening to Aretha, Aretha Franklin album the other day, and I was just was like, this is perfect because everything's exactly where it needs to be because it was there at that moment. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Editing is a type of time travel or uh, that interests me. I, I would love to meet the uh, Flying Lotus because some people do that well. But, yeah, I know it, sometimes it does take away from the life of a, Track. But that's what's fascinating. That's what I'm trying to figure out for myself as I embark on recording more, how I'm going to approach it. Because, yeah, it's just, there's, like I said, so many options. Right. So here's the thing. Do you have any particular, so, so we're talking about options and we're talking about editors and we're talking about producers. And are there any yep. that you have that stand out to you? It's for me, it's like I produce my own stuff. I'm just like, I'm out there like, all right, I just got to get this done. And I have like, you know, somebody who mixes this is what I want. And like, he'll go, I think this is a bad idea. Um, <laughs> yeah. He's like, and I'm like, wait, it's a genius idea. And he's like, nah, not, not, no. It's yeah. Not Cause you smart. trust him. Right. And why do you trust him? And why oh, do you yes, trust his him? amazing ears and amazing, you know, amazing. But why do you trust him? I trust the people I work with. Okay. Yeah. See, I'm, I'm starting to question that too, because <laughs> everyone just has their own ideas. Right. And so much of, Sometimes success is based on you bucking up against the norms or sometimes there's a certain feeling you get by knowing this is just what you wanted, despite what everyone, everyone else said, it, it wasn't the right way. That's how I feel about bitter. Like and no one at my label liked it, but wait, that wait, seems what? to be. Yeah. So, so, so that's why I'm like, like, I just, that's why I'm like, why do you, how do you trust people? Who do you center yourself around? Who, do you have four go to people? Do you have four to five go to people that you trust to be like, listen to this and tell me what you feel? And I'm like I said, I'm like, but how do they earn that trust? Just because you have aesthetic, similar aesthetic sensibilities? Well, for me, it's like I work with the same people all the time. Like these are my people. I use the same guys. We talk about things all the time like you know we talk mm-hmm. about different music we talk about different styles we talk about different players so these are the people that i actually know and trust their judgment based off of what i know about them as people relationships you know, or I, yeah. yeah the relationships and it's a big thing for me it's like i know you i trust you what do you think this should sound like or you know I, it's, it's literally that for me 
Um, and I don't move around a lot. I've been like, that's probably why nobody knows who I am ever. <laughs> but, Stop um, <laughs> saying that. You gotta, I'm going to come give you a yeah, no. But, um, Speak not that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I used to say, I literally use the same people all the time. And I'm like, I'm very much like everybody has their, like one thing about Philadelphia is everybody has their own sound coming out of Philly. It's a very distinctive thing. It's like they can play, they have their own style, although it's, it's 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 everybody has a very strong opinion and don't always work with <laughs> yeah. the system and that's what like for me it's like that's what works for me because therefore you can be like i just don't like this and it's cool yeah you know yep. and it's like i'm not sure how they came to that with bitter because i remember having that album on repeat like i was like this is it i'm gonna stick this in a cd player it's gonna stay there for like five months and it literally did um, yeah, no, because no one knows. It's all subjective. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly. all subjective. It yes. always is. It always is. But I mean- The final installment of this Soho Shortwave podcast comes from this month's show by Doc and Roll, the music documentary company. They chat to film director, cinematographer and photographer Alfred George Bailey about his influences and upcoming projects. How's this for a debut? Gregory Porter, don't forget your music. Um, That was his debut as director in cinematography and his multi-award winning second feature film, Show Me the Picture, the story of Jim Marshall about the life and times of the infamous music photographer who captured some of the most iconic musicians across many genres and pivotal moments in social history. Not all boomer time, but a lot of it. Um, So as a filmmaker or photographer, Alfred has a documentarian's eye and that's what we're going to talk to him about. And um, thank you so much for coming in. No, thank you so much for having me. This is great. I feel um, um, probably unduly... Um, um, <laughs> this is lo- lots of praise, and I think well, it's really lovely. And thank you, you so much. you got a place in our heart, and you know why. Yeah, I, I, know I why. just got to tell you, 2016, BFI, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it's all warranted. I guess at the time when you made the Gregory Porter story, and, and it comes up in the film, not that many people knew about him, you know? So uh, yeah, it's really funny because at that time, Gregory. When I met Gregory, he came over. I was introduced to Heather Taylor and through a friend of mine who was a DJ on. Uh, and isn't it funny when you think about it? His name escapes me. He's going to kill me. Um, he introduced me to Heather. I got introduced to Gregory, um, and he came over with his band for the first time. Not just him as a solo artist, and. I got to hear him on stage and I was ah. it was quite an amazing thing because I was doing the sound check I was at the sound check mm-hmm. and I saw uh, you know all the members of the band I didn't know anybody and I got to know Gregory literally half an hour before or maybe an hour before just say hi how you doing I'm going to be at the sound check I was taking photos and all of a sudden the the sound engineer said could you um just check the mic, please, Gregory. And then Gregory goes, you know, apologise, I just need to do this. And then he sang and I was stood there, like, as close as I am to you. And then this voice came out and I was like, wow. this is, wow. You know, it's an incredible voice, you know, like the voice of the ages. It's like, it's timeless. It's, um, it has a resonance and it has a, a, there's a depth of feeling in his voice and a depth of emotion and, um, all the things that he's been through in his life mm-hmm. came through and other people's lives. And I thought, this is, this is um, remarkable. And then while they was doing more warm-ups, I had another camera, which is set up to film. And I started filming because it never, in, it, there was never the intention to make a film originally. It was only meant to take some photos of Gregory and his band. And then I met up with Heather again. And then we talked about it and uh, not making a film, just capturing him and the journey because, you know, knowing that he would be somebody important. And then. Uh, so you already knew that. You already had that feeling. You can't hear a voice like that mm. and not know that somebody's going to turn into something quite remarkable. Yeah. He's an incredible performer, the band are, you know, outstanding. And um, 
the first thing it was like there was no budget and I went yes <laughs> of course <laughs> how, how many no times budget? has a creative person heard that one this is brilliant by the way we've got a pound and a half exactly got, yeah tuppence hate me and uh are you interested and well at that time you go with your gut and I said mm. yes wow. and that's the thing to do in it was a calculation knowing that we were working in between I had not long left Apple so there was some money floating around from a job I used to work for Apple and went on that journey for the first two years it wasn't a serious undertaking as such as capturing and all of a sudden it became really serious and the last 18 months it turned into a whole film and I have to shout out to uh, Norman Mary from Lip Sync because without him saying yes because we went to see a few people and a lot of them said no they're not interested in why did they say no they hadn't heard of him or well, they... haven't heard of me as a filmmaker right. that's the thing and the two other people involved were not in the film industry at all. They're not in, not in there. Right. So when you're... <laughs> I'd worked in the industry before as a camera assistant um, and a production assistant, so I know the industry uh, from the, obviously, the, the other side of the camera. And um, I was the only one who had film experience as such. And when you go around to different post-production houses, a lot of them just say, nah. and they didn't want to help finish the film you need that you need mm. a post house to either try and do a production deal with you or you have um, a real producer on board who can raise the finance so we didn't have that but we went to see him and I remember in the meeting that he we were having this production meeting I was thinking this is going a bit far this guy who's doing this and there's another person who's doing that and and uh, I said so are we doing this he went <laughs> what do you think we're here for <laughs> and he looked at me and went that was the the most beautiful wink I'd ever got. Wow. He looked at me and winked, and then he said, "Yeah, well, this is real." So y your struggles kind of mirrored Gregory's in a way that you know, try to get this film out. It was trying to get it um, finished. Well, that actually happened quicker than I thought it would happen. Getting it uh, into post, it was a great set of circumstances and meeting people, and then getting to know Norman, who was really. He's a friend of a lot of filmmakers in terms of ones who are up and coming, and I owe him a lot, literally, because he's post house did the last one I did. Um, uh, okay. I still breathe. Yeah. Right. So, uh, well, what what I wanted to say was, um, is it uh, is it a big leap to take <laughs> to say I'm not doing a short, I'm not doing something for TV, I'm I'm doing a feature documentary that's a, that's a whole other level of commitment in terms of time and uh, in terms of who you need to be involved like the first one is it just insane optimism that makes people do number one <laughs> or the story is so great you can't let it go yes, i'm going to be committed yeah insane <laughs> optimism do you know what it's like I, I think when it's like the naivety of a child you just do it and not know what the actual hard road what the process is going to be and i think at the time through necessity, I was the cameraman, sound recorders, interviewer, <laughs> produced tracks for the soundtrack, did stills, and was in on the edit. Or in the editor, Dan Setford, he was great uh, on that. And just meeting all these people and just, you know, it coming together. But um, you just have to believe. And I didn't have that, th that, mm, that life experience in the film industry on the other side being a director and trying to struggle to get something finished so you know you just kind of work at it and just see how it goes some people think that you're being silly and crazy what are you doing this for this is crazy you know but then you think uh, you're on a journey and I had a point to prove in a way that I, I wanted to you know create something special I think the film is special for a debut. I think so. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think a few other people yeah. might, might concur with you. <laughs> the 900 people at that screening at the BFI. Yeah, 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 we sold start. it out twice. Yeah. I couldn't, yeah. That was... Um, I have to surprised? mention that. Yeah, yeah, it was like a um, an out-of-body experience. And <laughs> I used to go and watch people like Alan and Scorsese and all that, doing talks and mm. showing films and going... Yeah, you know, that's... I'd never for be them up there. to say. It? Yeah, it's really great watching them from... The, I wonder what it would be like to be up on stage and to, to, to look out into the audience, you know? Never believing it would actually happen. So, you know, you you never really think it. You, you hope it will happen. And then sitting there, Robert Elms is there, who I, I who know. I know. <laughs> and I got to meet Robert. I mean, I met yeah. Robert before, but he, yeah. Robert was great to, to, to be involved in that. And then Gregory came late as he usually he did a big grand entrance, which was fantastic. But it was just a lot of love in a room, and there were people there from my present past 
different eras that I've worked in and it was really an emotional experience for me sitting there thinking it did feel very weird and I couldn't watch the film no. Right. I had to go to the green room and uh, Stuart Brown, who was the head steward, That's right. Stuart, Stuart said to me, so supportive. come here, Alfred. And he took me into the green room and there was a bar area in the green room, as you know, and it was already laid out for everybody to come after the, after the screening. He said, sit down. And he, he poured me a large glass of red wine and he said to me, your debut film at the BFI, tick. He goes, sold out twice, tick. He said, you should be proud of yourself. And yeah, it was very strange. And uh, oh, my belly was doing somersaults, you know, thinking, will the audience like it? Will they even get it? Will they laugh at the places? Will they be quiet and poignant at the places that you know when you're in the edit? You think, this is the place I know I want people to be concentrated at. Because one of the things people may or may not know, I know this may sound obvious, that everything really is up to the edit. Once you've got all the material mm -hmm. together, it's like, it's like cooking. You have all the ingredients, but if you, you can make a bad meal with fantastic ingredients. So when you have an editor who who knows what they're doing, and I've worked with a couple, especially the last one, Adam Biskupski, who's a fantastic editor, and um, I owe him a lot because he did a job of work on showed me the picture. But um, The funny thing is you have an idea of how the story's going to go, but then something happens in the edit when you get all the material there and you get it all together and you think, oh my God, the story's going this way. And when more things reveal themselves and you look at archive material and you look at this and then all of a sudden someone says, oh, I found this piece of audio. Mm. This is what happened with Jim Marshall as well. Right, yeah. Well, w one thing I wanted to ask, and again, I think back to that, that Doc and Roll gala um, screening, what a way to kick off the 2016 year. And yes, I remember Stuart pouring you a glass of wine. I was hanging out in the green room there. Now, now um, obviously, Greg reporters, fans, anyone who's heard his voice and been moved by it, um, I think he holds a place in their hearts that's really unique. Now, yeah. you've got responsibility as a filmmaker to tell a story, to tell a story with understanding, but to people for whom he is so special, maybe they don't even want to know his backstory. Um, you know, what about that responsibility? There, there's one thing, if you're digging up a story that people don't know about, and often Doc and Roll succeeds in that, in, in yeah. presenting mm -hmm. films about scenes or, or artists that we don't know anything about, but those people who are in the room, obviously many of them would have known your name and your, your record as a photographer and as a creative, but there were a lot of people there who were there because of Gregory Porter. Yeah. How do you know, how do you deal with the fact that, you know, they might actually not like it at all? That's a great question. Um, and I think it's uh, one of those questions that you just got to trust that what you're doing and what you've done, you've done it with the right intention. You made the film, you made the album, you've made the sculpture, you've done a painting. See what I mean? You've yeah. written mm -hmm. the book, and you've done it from here, from your heart, and from a, um, the truest part of yourself, and being honest. And once you've done that, you've got to, like a child, you've got to let it out in the world, and then whatever happens, happens. You're not going to please everybody. There'll be people who won't like what you do, and there'll be people who really love what you do. You just hope that what you're trying to say, so you know, many people will get, and you know, people will be like, "Yeah, I understand where this film's coming from, and I can relate to that story in the film or in the book." How did you know that this film had reached those people? I mean, aside from the fact that they all bought tickets and they didn't run out in the middle, but you know, is there anything? Is there no, a social media post? The is there a re is yeah? Is there a review? Was there something that a member of the audience told you? Or yeah, that's a really good. Um, so we had a second screening at the Barbican, which was really great as well, and um, there was a. I'm going to cut to the chase. So we we the film was shown. It was really fantastic. The audience response was great, and then there was this guy I was talking to some friends in you know that, that that reception area of the barbican and there was this guy hanging around and I saw him and I said to my friends look this this guy needs hey, I just need to speak they said yeah yeah so I said I've seen you hanging around I said um can I help you he goes yeah yeah um I came to your first screening and I um I really loved it I said thank you so much and then he says oh, I wanted to tell you something so uh, that's why I came to this one he said a couple of days after 
I um, saw your film, I hadn't spoken to my father in 15 years. So after that screening, I called him. Because Gregory had a... Um, if you know in the film, mm. Gregory's mother is venerated, and, and rightly so. But the one thing I wanted to do was... <laughs> I had to ask him about his dad. And then you saw that whole journey and how the fact that he had to... Gregory had to forgive his father for the slights, the wrongdoings, and the things he said before he died. You know, that when Gregory says, I'm going to be singing, and his father says, there's a lot of great singers out there. What a thing to tell a son mm. before you die and to leave him with that. So that can either cripple somebody creatively and personally and emotionally and mentally, or you take that and you think, okay. It's a bit like John McEnroe. He's one of the most cleverest... He's an artist in the tennis field. Mm. He takes negative energy and turns it positive. And that's what Gregory did and knew that, you know, and he, even with all the fear of, there is a lot of great singers. America has a glut, and Canada, have, has a lot of great um, artists. And you think, you know, the, how can I be as good as this or better than, or just, or I, I want my voice to be heard. And you have to believe in that. And he, he did. So that gentleman telling me that and I said to him thank you so much it really touched me and I did get emotional I said well, I've done my job yeah. if one person can tell you something like that and you know that's on a deep emotional level he came twice he had to come to the next thing to tell me to let me know this is what happened and he reconnected with a father that he had obviously they had fallen out thanks for listening to Soho Shortwave if you want to listen to the full versions of any of the shows featured, catch up on our Mixcloud. Just search Soho Radio. And if you liked what you heard, subscribe to this podcast and tune in live at any time to SohoRadioLondon.com or get the app. This is a Soho Radio Productions podcast. 